I'm Samin Nasrat. And I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And we're home cooking. This is episode two of our four-part quarantine miniseries, where we take questions from folks who need help figuring out what to do with the ingredients they've got on hand. Later, we're going to be joined by James Beard award-winning cookbook author Stella Parks to help us answer some of your questions about baking. We're also going to be joined by W. Kamau Bell, the great comedian and host of United Shades of America, to discuss banana pancakes. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. We're excited to answer a few of them. But before we get to those, first, Samin, what have you been cooking? Oh, Rishi, I'm in a real red sauce joint kind of mood these days. Oh, yeah? You know, before the quarantine for the last several months, I've been trying to eat either vegan or vegetarian for most or all of the day. Mm -hmm. And somehow in the last week, I made both pepperoni pizza and pork meatball. (laughs) Like that's more pork than I've eaten in months. Yeah. And so I don't know, man. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) And the other thing I'm craving, which I'm going to try and make in the next few days, is one of those like, oh, wait, did you go to school on the East Coast? Yes, I did. That's where I'm from. Yeah. So maybe you know all about this kind of stuff. But like, I really want to make one of those like New Jersey style like um, pizza salads, those ones that have like salami and chickpeas and like radicchio and there's like pieces of cheese in the salad and there's oregano in the vinaigrette. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, it just sounds like you're describing a salad. Is that an East Coast thing? In my imagination, that is like New Jersey pizzeria salad. The fact that there's sliced meat in it? Yeah, the meat and the cheese. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hmm, I don't know. I think it's just like this specific form and type of cheese and meat. That's all. All right. It's like a New Jersey chopped salad. I want to make that. I mean, I don't. I, I object to the characterization of this being from New Jersey. Are you taking this personally? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to set the record straight. I feel like, you know, a chopped salad, that's that's everywhere. You can't put that on New Jersey or put it in New Jersey. Absolutely. I would agree that chopped salad comes from all over. I just think that this version of chopped salad, (laughs) I mean, I've never been to New Jersey. So Uh, here I am just being prejudiced. (laughs) But I have a lot of friends from New Jersey. Oh, gosh. And they take pride. My friend Melissa makes this stuff she calls Jersey Mix. Mm -hmm. And it's so delicious. (laughs) Maybe I call it Jersey Mix now that I think about it. I feel like she's your your token New Jersey friend that you're using to justify the stereotype. (laughs) No, she's not. I know a lot. I have a lot of New Jersey friends. (laughs) Now I just... I just haven't met any of them, but I'm sure they exist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Now we've gone down a real dark (laughs) dark road. Yeah. Yeah. This might be safer territory. Can you tell me about your red sauce? (laughs) Well, my red sauce is super simple. I historically have a whole thing where I cook onions and tomatoes and garlic for hours until they're so sweet and then puree them, blah, 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 do, do, do. And I'm in lazy mode right now, like Mm -hmm. major lazy mode. So when I made the meatballs, I didn't do anything. I just crushed the the can of tomatoes by hand put it around the meatballs in the pan. Wait, by hand, like like literally by, with your hand or? Yeah, I used my hand. I didn't crush the entire can. I opened the can and then crushed the tomatoes inside. <laughs> sure, yeah. I was not thinking you were going to Incredible Hulk the aluminum. But I mean, you know, you might crush my, my hand. Yes. It's not like you're like, you know, using a fork or anything like that to help with the crushing. No, in fact, that's like, to me, the greatest joy of cooking with a canned tomato is the part where you get to use your hands to crush it. Mm. It's like the greatest fun. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I put some salt in there. I was so lazy. I just grated some garlic in. And then I put it in the pan and I had the ends of the onions that I had chopped and cooked and put in the meatballs. So I yeah. just put those onion ends in there. I saw that <laughs> then, on your Instagram. <laughs> and that, I, that's the part that people normally throw away. Well, it is the part people normally throw away, but there is like a very, very famous tomato sauce by Marcella Hazan, the great Italian cookbook author. It's maybe her most famous recipe is her tomato sauce, where she just takes a can of tomatoes, crushes it by hand. <laughs> so powerful. <laughs> puts it in the pot. And then puts half of a raw sliced onion and just simmers it and then finishes it with butter. So it's literally tomato, onion, butter, salt. That's it. Wow. So I was like, well, maybe I can just sort of like fake that by putting these onion ends in here and letting them perfume the sauce. And then whatever like flavors are, you know, being exchanged between the meatballs and the sauce was pretty good. And then I had put all of these random cheeses that I just had little bits of cheese that I grated in the meatball mix. 
So I had the super random Gouda rinds. <laughs> so I put Gouda rinds in the tomato pan. Usually you would use a Parmesan rind. What happens? Does the rind melt? Does it fall apart? Usually those hard cheese rinds, people traditionally will use them in a stock or a sauce. Mm-hmm. Like you'll throw your Parmesan rind into your bolognese or people even just make pure Parmesan stock out of the rinds because it's so flavorful. It's pure like umami flavor. And then you just pull it out like a bay leaf at the end? Yeah, exactly. And then you just pull it out at the end. So oh. I just did that in hopes that something good would happen. I mean, it tasted pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're saying you're doing this in lazy mode, but it still sounds like a lot of work. I mean, it was definitely not a lazy dinner. The lazy meal I had this week was Annie's macaroni and cheese with frozen peas and chili crisp. Yeah. That sounds pretty good too, though. Oh, man, that was so good. Yeah. But this definitely was an amount of work. It was just that I hit my work threshold and I was like, I'm not making sauce too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By the time I had made the meatball mix and browned the meatballs. I was done. Right. But that's enough about my meatballs. Rishi, what's the best thing you've tasted all week? The best thing I've tasted recently is raw power. (laughs) That sounds like an energy drink. (laughs) (laughs) It is really energizing, but I'm talking about actual power, which is all I've felt since the first episode of our show came out, because I've been seeing all these tweets and Instagram posts from people who've been making things that we recommended. And like specifically, the savory oats that I mentioned offhand. Oh, I love that. You're just feeling like a food influencer. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, is this what Samin feels all the time? (laughs) You know, what's pretty wild. I love just guiding people toward cooking and I don't really care what they cook. I think just empowering them to cook anything Uh is what brings me joy. Yeah. But it is amazing to see the waves of life that this focaccia from the show has had. Hmm. And I think it's an introductory sort of bread baking for a lot of people. It's the first time a lot of people have worked with yeast. And it makes me really happy to see people succeeding and really enjoying making something. So, Okay. On that note, then, here's my promise to you. Before we are done with this podcast, I'm going to try to make it. You are? Yeah. I've never made bread before in my life. But for you, I'll give it a shot. Oh, that makes me so happy. That makes me really, really happy. You know what I think I'm going to try and do, which I'm going to regret saying this on the record. Make a podcast with me. Is make a podcast. (laughs) I already regret that. Uh, Well, it's mostly just the puns, but (laughs) which now like I think in puns, it's really fakakta. I'm sorry. And you're welcome. (laughs) No, I, the other day I had a little tiny urge in my belly that I couldn't squash to make bread, like to make my own sourdough bread. And I have never felt that desire. I've actively not felt that desire. (laughs) Well, I mean, peer pressure. Everybody else is doing it. So now's the time. Yeah. (laughs) I also am just not like, there's so much great bread around me. There are amazing bakers in my community, but I don't know. I like, it was an unfamiliar feeling and I'm going to try and heat it, I think. I can't (laughs) wait. I anxiously await the results. Okay, great. Maybe there'll be a loaf of bread in the mail. You're just going to get so much weird stuff in the mail. Yes, that's what I want. Please send it. So obviously constraints are a theme of the whole quarantine period. And we've been talking a lot about what people can make with what they have. But I wanted to play you some questions that deal with constraints around what people don't have. So this first question is from Marta, and we don't have audio, so I'm just going to read it. Marta asks, I could use some practical advice on cooking on the really cheap. I have $45 to stretch for 14 days of lunches and dinners. I have pretty much nothing left by way of staples, such as canned tomatoes, so it's pretty tight. Please help. Wow. This is a really tough one. Anytime money has been tight for me, and there have been many times, I've been working in restaurants, and so there's always food, ultimately. I've always had that safety. Mm -hmm. Let's do the math. Let's see. um, $45 for 14 days. It works out to just over $3 a day. When I've had budgets like that, you know, it's when I was on tour with my band and making no money. Basically, you're losing money every day, and so you just try and eat for as cheap as possible. So you go to a grocery store in whatever town you're in, and you know there were a lot of like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, I definitely am a champion of a PBJ mm-hmm. for sure. So, and I eat a lot of those even in my regular life. Do you have any tips on advanced peanut butter and jelly technique? No. 
<laughs> okay, let me give you mine. This only works with the toaster oven, but that is to spread the peanut butter on the bread and then toast it. What? Yes. Won't it like melt through? No, I mean, it doesn't melt through. I guess you might get some leakage. It depends on how porous your bread is. Nowadays, I usually use Ezekiel bread. And then as the bread toasts, you know, the peanut butter warms up as well. And then on the other side of the bread, you put the cold jelly, and then you get the contrast of both, you know, it's like what we were talking about with the latkes. You get yeah. the contrast of both the warmed up peanut butter and the cool jelly and the toasted crunchy bread. This is wild. Really? I'm going to try it. I'll get back to you. Okay. Anyway, back to Marta. Another thought I have is I think eggs are going to help you get through this time. So, you know, like let's say a dozen eggs cost like four bucks. So what does that work out to? Like 33 cents an egg. So I think if you could take eight eggs and make a tortilla espanol with potatoes and caramelized onions, that could be turned into, I would say, six generous slices that will be totally satisfying as a meal on their own. And you could eat them with whatever pickles you've got lying around. You could eat them in a sandwich, you know, I think would be really delicious. One other thing I wanted to mention is a cookbook that our editor, Margaret Miller, recommended when I shared Marta's question with her. It's called Good and Cheap by Leanne Brown. Do you know this book? Oh my God, I totally remember that book. It looks great. It's so awesome. Yeah, it's specifically designed for people to be able to eat well on $4 a day. Yeah, I used to recommend that cookbook to a lot of my students. And I feel like the author wrote it specifically for people on a food stamps budget, on a SNAP budget. Yeah. And it's super impressive. And if I remember correctly, you can just download it for free off of the internet. You don't even have to buy the book. Yeah, you can buy it online, but you can also download a free PDF of it from her website, leannebrown.com slash cookbooks. And what's also amazing is it's available in both English and in Spanish. Oh, that's so cool. Does Margaret have any favorite recipes? Yeah, she said that she made the creamy zucchini fettuccine a whole bunch. Uh, we can put a link to that one specifically too. Leanne ha has that recipe up on her site. Oh man. Oh, it looks so delicious. <laughs> I remember this book being amazing because it uses a lot of whole ingredients and it's kind of just teaches you the thinking behind how to stretch stuff, you know, how to shop for bargains and how to eat nutritiously and deliciously on a really, really low budget. So I think that's an awesome, awesome recommendation. Thanks, Margaret. Okay, Marta, check out Good and Cheap and I hope that this advice helps. Yeah, Marta. Good luck. Okay, here's a question from someone who also is dealing with some interesting constraints. Listen to this. Hi, my name is Max, and I'm a city bus driver in Seattle, Washington. I'm wondering if you have any great ideas about food to take with me out on the road. At the moment, I'm driving a piece of work that still goes out in the afternoons and evenings and gets people around who have essential trips that they need to make and rely on public transit for that. I pull up to a transit center and have a half hour break where there's an opportunity for me to hop off the bus and wash my hands and then eat whatever I've packed to bring with me. There is no microwave and no refrigerator. So I'm wondering if you have any ideas about things to take with me and ways to make this an especially grounding experience, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Wow, Max, you're amazing. Right? <laughs> I've got some ideas. The things that come to mind are salads that either won't like degrade with being dressed for hours out of the fridge or actually improve. Mm. So things like grain salads, I think, will be delicious as they sit sort of and marinate a farro salad, a chickpea salad. So you don't have to have your salad and your dressing separated. Yeah, it's already done. It's already dressed and it's sitting there and it's delicious. I think cabbage slaws improve with sitting around, you know, and you could make that sort of Mexican-ish or you could make it like with sesame oil and crunchy peanuts and chilies. I too like a cabbage slaw improve with sitting around. <laughs> uh, yeah, a cabbage slaw if you wanted to put a little bit of shredded roast chicken. You know, you don't need a refrigerator if you have like a cooler lunch bag. I think that's fine for several hours for stuff like that. The things I wouldn't want to eat if they weren't refrigerated are probably like intense dairy situation or, you know, mayonnaise probably or like deli meats. Those mm -hmm. things I wouldn't keep out. But if you have a like a lunch cooler or something you can put a little ice pack in, a little bit of like shredded cooked chicken will be fine. 
I think a soba noodle salad or a rice noodle salad that either is pre-dressed or that you make a little separate jar of dressing and you sort of just like dump it into the Tupperware, close the Tupperware and shake to dress is a great, great thing that feels kind of vibrant and alive. Another thing that came to mind immediately was the kinds of sandwiches that improve with sitting. Historically, like the way I've seen them is people will build a many layered, say like cheeses and vegetable, like pickled vegetables and maybe a little bit of meat or something in there and then wrap it in foil and press it under a weight, you know, a can of tomatoes or something. And so like all the flavors marinate and then that thing gets sliced. So you could, you could sort of approximate that with focaccia. You could do, you know, a little bit of salami, pickled peppers or anything like that in there. Do you have to worry about the pickled vegetables soaking? Making it soggy? Yeah, making it soggy. Those sandwiches, you kind of want a little sog. But I also think there's creative assemblage. (laughs) Creative assemblage. Creative sandwich assembly. Creative layering. The order of operations within your sandwich. Exactly. So like there are definitely the things that you could put on the outer edges that would prevent too much sog. I'm not a number one fan of the lettuce as the barrier because then the lettuce gets soggy. Right. You have to be thoughtful about the social distancing between your sandwich ingredients. Absolutely. Because, you know, you just have to think about what it's going to be like in several hours. But I take great joy in a pre-assembled sandwich. I really do. Another thing I think is with sandwich or salad... What's inevitable is some sog. So what's going to make it more exciting to eat is some crunch. So this is when the classic potato chip in a sandwich. Oh, speaking (laughs) my language. Yeah. Or like crunchy thing crumbled atop your salad is really going to make it sort of much more exciting to eat. So some crunchy things that I can think of. I mean, a very simple one that you can just always have a little jar of in your pocket (laughs) or in your lunch bag is furikake, the Japanese mix of, you know, seaweed and sesame seeds. Any sort of like sesame seeds spice mix is just a little bit of crunch right there. And a little umami. Mm -hmm, And a little bit of umami and salt. And that's so good. There's also the crumbled potato chip, which... You could pre-crumble in your bag and then just sprinkle without Mm -hmm. having to touch. I recommend a jalapeno potato chip, especially for that, because you get the salty, crunchy bits, but also a little zing. Ooh, I like that. Also, for this particular purpose, I would recommend a kettle chip. It doesn't have to be a kettle brand, but a kettle, you know, those are just much crunchier chips. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Max. One of the things that's neat about all of these constraints is that they are leading people to some creative solutions. And so, uh, Samin, I wanted to play this message that we got from Nicole. Currently sitting in my home in Boone, North Carolina, making some focaccia. And it's 1130 at night and my house is a little too cold for it to proof, but I don't have a proofing drawer. So I stuck my whole bowl in my dryer that had some clean clothes in it and had just been done. So yeah, that's what you got to do to proof your dough. And I'm freaking out. Cabin fever is really real. Oh, Nicole, I feel you. I hope the carbs helped ease your pain. The dryer is so good. But I do love, I fully have been there where I'm like, where can I put this? Where is going to be warm enough? I don't know that I've ever been creative enough to think about the dryer. But I love that she did. Yeah. I have to say I'm so inspired by people's creativity these days. And the focaccia dough in the dryer is no exception. It's a great example. That's awesome. Thanks for sending that. Thank you, Nicole. Okay, joining us in a moment is Stella Parks, author of Brave Tart. Before we get her on the line, though, Samin, will you just explain who Stella is and why you wanted to have her join us? So Stella is an amazing baker who I always look to. Anytime I have a baking question, I'm always like, what would Stella do? What would Stella say? She just has endless patience where I have none. (laughs) (laughs) And so anytime I need to look up both for my own baking or when I need to sort of refer to something so that I can talk about it, I'll read what she's written. And she's very calming and very, very smart. Okay, let's go. We've got her on the line. Hey, Stella. Hi, Stella. Oh, my God. Hey, guys. Stella, we've got a bunch of baking questions that were sent in to us. Are you ready to just jump in? Yeah, I'm ready to bake the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the most common thing that people have been encountering with baking is that there's no white flour. Here's Daniel. My question is about white flour. I mean, I can't find any on any shelves. So when I did go to the store, I found 
whole wheat flour unbleached. And I also found a couple versions of gluten-free flour. It's just all there was. What do I do? So I think most importantly, we have to decide how experienced someone is and how committed they are to the thing it is that they want to make and whether or not pivoting might be a better idea. I would stick with recipes from the manufacturer. They're familiar with what their flowers need and how they behave, and they'll have recipes that are tested and developed mm. specifically for those flowers. Mm-hmm. Bakers have already like, paved that way for them. But if you're not really familiar with baking and suddenly trying to adapt all your recipes to 100% whole wheat flour, you're still changing like the fundamental structure of a recipe. Mm. So looking for recipes that are based around whole wheat flour would be a great way. And I have a recipe on Serious Eats for 100% whole wheat sandwich loaf. So that's like a good place to jump in. Oh, perfect. Okay, here's a question from Jennifer, who's also been considering trying to make bread. I've seen a lot of recipes online that call for a stand mixer to make the bread. Um, And I can't really justify buying a stand mixer at the moment. So I was wondering if either of you had any tips or techniques or recipes to still make beautiful, wonderful bread without necessarily having a gadget like that. I too am without a a stand mixer. In fact, I had a batch of cookies fail earlier this week, and I'm going to blame lack of a stand mixer on it. (laughs) Did the cookies spread too much? They did spread too much. Yeah. So it would make my life easier, I think, but I know that I can make them without a stand mixer. But what about with bread? Bread is one of those things where a stand mixer is extremely useful, but not necessarily vital. You can absolutely make bread by hand. Uh, It just definitely takes a little bit more muscle power. I mean, it depends on the recipe for sure. There are a lot of recipes that don't involve like a tremendous amount of kneading, but then there are some others that do require a little bit, you know, higher level of gluten development. And I think people can be really surprised when they're like, uh, I'm still going and my arms hurt. Because if it, if it takes like eight minutes on a stand mixer, it's going to take you a long time to do that by hand. I actually just baked a loaf of Kenji's no-need bread that's on Serious Eats. And that was great. That's been in my regular rotation. Can you tell us a little bit about what a no-need bread is? Is it really no kneading? It, it really is no kneading. But the trade-off with no-need breads is that they're a little bit time-consuming because you're letting the gluten form passively in the dough over time. It's kind of a nice thing to have in the rotation because you can kind of get like a couple loaves going at once. For the average person, that's not the recipe they want to go to because they want a bread now. But for those of us who are kind of like settling into our new like quarantine routine, the, that could be a really good <laughs> thing to incorporate because you can kind of just keep a batch going. Meanwhile, you've got the next loaf fermenting in the fridge and that can be really great. And there's no need for a stand mixer for something like that. No need for a stand mixer. Whoa. I know. No need for just, a... Oh, guys, I should have seen that. I was walking right into that. <laughs> but wait, so no need bread lets time do the work that, you know, a stand mixer would be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Or the otherwise muscle power of some sort would be doing. As a person who has not baked much bread in my own life, I'm tempted to start with the no need because I'd rather invest the time than the work. <laughs> I'm so lazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's another question that we got. Samin, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on this because it comes from Italy, where I know you spent a lot of time. It comes from Noelle, and there's uh, no recording here, but I'll just read it. She said, I am an American living in Rome for many years now. Approaching week four of quarantine, I've been doing some baking. While I usually use Italian recipes, occasionally I want to make some American classics, brownies, chocolate chip cookies, etc. But I find that double O flour behaves differently from all-purpose flour. And the... Wait, Samina, I'm going to send this to you. How do you pronounce this? Lievito vanigliato per dolci. Okay. She says that is, it's not the same as baking powder. Wait, what is that? It's like vanilla flavored raising agent for desserts. Mm. And do you have a lot of experience using these ingredients? Yeah. I've used double O flour for all sorts of stuff. I love it for pasta. It's very soft. It's very finely milled. And soft and hard are just uh, words that refer to the protein content of flour. So soft flour will be less glutinous once Mm. it's worked and Mm -hmm. harder flours you can work and develop more gluten and get all that crustiness. So if you want a crusty bread, you're not going to get that out of, you know, a super soft double O flour. What Stella has been saying all along is you're never going to sort of like conjure magic out of your ingredients. But I do think what you can do in Italy is look for something like durum wheat flour or another harder flour to get that protein content up and start trying to get some bread out of that. 
things are going to be different and it might not be exactly like you read about or you pictured or you saw on Instagram or something. It's going to be something different and you just kind of have to roll with that or its needs might be different. It might take longer to bake or it might need more water or take more kneading or, you know, whatever this variable is. But, you know, if you're not holding this tight expectation that it's going to be exactly like the thing that you read about and you're willing to just like, let's see what happens. I'm learning about it. Then that's fantastic. It's really about expectation management, I think. Stella, do you think that there are some American classics, like Noelle was asking about, that are more forgiving? Yeah, I think cookies are a pretty safe bet in terms of baked goods, because, you know, if your cookies spread a little bit more or they're a little bit chewier than you expected, they're a little bit cakier than you expected, they're still going to be cookies. And that is a really great thing. I definitely made chocolate chip cookies from the like Toll House recipe when I lived in Italy. Oh, yeah. And I think they were just they spread a little bit more, you know, but I think ultimately it was it was still pretty recognizable. Oh, I mean, a cookie crossed with pizza dough, a pizza cookie. I'm ready for pizza cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so in. Oh, my God. That was <laughs> Okay, here's a question that got sent in to us from Ian Chillog, who's the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Everything is Alive. I love him. Here's his question. Hey, Rishi and Samin. This is Ian in Los Angeles, where I'm isolating at home with my wife and our new baby. Uh, My wife is having a craving uh, for white cake. It's kind of a classic birthday cake. And I would love to be able to make her this cake. We... Uh, don't have any white flour. We do have some whole wheat flour. Um, and I have sugar and brown sugar, baking soda, baking powder. We have some oatmeal. Just looking through the pantry here. Some wild sockeye salmon. Um, Werther's Originals. Some Lifesavers. A lot of cereal. Mostly in the sort of okay, brand, he's just, brand flavor. He's just listening stuff. I'm going to skip ahead. Yeah. So I don't know. I'd, I'd love to be able to make her cake. Help me help her. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> wow. First of all, I think we need to focus on the sockeye salmon. <laughs> I think a salmon cake is going to be so much closer to a white cake than a cake made with whole wheat flour. That's just where I'm at right now. <laughs> yeah, I already was losing my mind just when he started with whole wheat flour, no white flour, <laughs> which I, I was like, okay, this is already <laughs> impossible. And then he listed 5,000 other <laughs> <laughs> What's a cake that Ian can make with just whole wheat flour and Werther's originals? <laughs> Stella, can you help him? Again, I think it's all coming back to expectation management. <laughs> what, what we've got to work with. Because what goes in a white cake? What goes in a classic white cake? The thing that makes white cake taste like white cake is specifically the type of flour used. <laughs> so if you're getting away from that... So we can't make a traditional white cake, maybe, but is there some kind of birthday cake that uses whole wheat flour to approximate it? I don't think I've ever made a whole wheat flour cake, um, which is why I'm going back to the sockeye salmon. And I think a really <laughs> nice dinner of these like delicious salmon cakes and just saying, babe, I know you're craving white cake right now, but the only cake I know how to make are these salmon cakes. And I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. <laughs> I am a real Debbie Downer, you guys. No, you're not. No, this is, I think, really, really important for people to hear because I think there is, of course, going to be some amount of substituting that's going to happen and is necessary. But I think it's really good cooking advice to tell people you got to just change your game. It's not about changing the ingredients. It's about looking at what you have and making what's appropriate with that. Yes, a hundred percent. So for everyone else, you can thrive by working with the ingredients you have. Ian, for your lovely wife, Emily, and her very specific craving, though, I'm afraid she's out of luck. I'm sorry. Yeah. Until you can get some white flour. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Emily. Okay, there are a couple questions that were sent in to us that weren't originally baking questions specifically, but I thought baking might be a great context to try and answer them. Let me start with this question from Rose. Hello, Samin and Rishi. My name is Rose, and I have a question about apples. I buy them (laughs) at the farmer's market or in the CSA that we get because I have this idea that I will eat them as a snack because that is what good, healthy people do. Um, But in reality, I eat Doritos and drink Diet Coke, and the apples are piling up. Right now, I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. (laughs) 
16 <laughs> apples in various stages of their life. They're fine. They're totally edible, I think, just not in a snacking kind of way. So I need to get rid of them because they're a visual reminder that I'm a trash person and they're taunting me. And I just, I have to do something with these apples, but I don't know what. And I don't really want to make applesauce because I don't really like applesauce. Help me use these apples so they can go away. And hopefully in a way that doesn't involve puff pastry, because that sounds really scary. Rose, you're not a trash person. (laughs) There's, by the way, an addendum that she sent to her question. I have bad news. I found three more apples in the back of the fridge, which brings the (laughs) apple count up to 19. Please help me. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. Rose, that is a lot of apples. Yeah. Like, where do you even keep them? You got to get rid of them. I'm I'm ready for this one. And it's weirdly converging with the whole wheat cake. What? Um, I actually do have a cake that's made with 100% whole wheat flour. <laughs> I just forgot I repressed it. Or at least it can be. Um, the carrot cake recipe from my book, which is also on Serious Eats for free. I think it's like part whole wheat and part white. But actually, 100% whole wheat is great in that recipe because there's a lot of liquid in that recipe. And whole wheat flour is great at managing that liquid content. So you can definitely at least make a carrot cake, which is nothing like a white cake. But in terms of these apples, there's a variation in my book, which is you take the apples and you shred them the way you shred carrots, like on a box grater. You shred the apples, then you like wrap them up in cheesecloth or a tea towel and just squeeze until like all the juice comes out, which is really delicious. You have a glass of like freshly squeezed apple cider to enjoy. And then the dried out shreds get used just like carrots in the carrot cake recipe. And now it's an apple cake. Oh my God, you are blowing my mind. Can I tell you something crazy right now? I'm so ready. This is making me feel like an imposter, but it's okay. For the last four months, I've had a dream that I will invent a cake (laughs) that's like a, it started as a banana bread. And then I was like, what if I put whole wheat flour in this banana bread? So I did many tests and started working in uh, whole wheat pastry flour, which is a little softer. And I found a good percentage that tastes really good in the banana bread. And then I was like, what if this cake could use whatever you have? So I've been making versions with apples, with pears, with carrots. And here I am at home thinking I'm so brilliant and inventing something totally new. (laughs) And it's already in your book. (laughs) I love that. You're all, it has whole wheat flour, has carrots, has apples. It's great. I'm like, literally... I mean, I know there's nothing new under the sun. That's I've I've definitely I'm very familiar with that in cooking that everything's already been done. But it's just so funny because I was like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna frame this in this way that it's anything cake. And you already you literally already did uh, it. <laughs> I love that this happens in other mediums because just a couple of weeks ago I was working on the score for a video game and there was a piece that I was writing and I felt so good about it. And I was like, yeah, 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 this is coming together. And then I finished and I walked away and then I came back and I played it again and I realized I had written one of the main themes from Skyrim. (laughs) Not just already a piece of music that existed, but specifically a piece of music for a video game that I had just happened to have been playing the week before. (laughs) I'm glad that that happens for chefs too. (laughs) Oh yeah, all the time, all the time. Anyway, still, I'll credit you if I ever write this recipe. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I mean, it's like the fun part about like fruits and vegetables is they're all mostly water. So there's a lot that you can do in terms of switching them back and forth. Yeah, that's so cool. That's awesome. Stella, you're amazing. Thanks so much for sharing all of your knowledge. <laughs> Just putting a stop to all the fun. Like, everyone stop. Don't do that thing you were about to do. Do something else instead. No, I think you're just <laughs> preventing a lot of disappointment, which is really an important part of it. Helping people know when to change course is really important. And sometimes you're not going to get that, like, fluffy cupcake that you're really craving. And that's okay. Just go on Instagram and watch videos. <laughs> Of other people's fluffy cupcakes. (laughs) Stella, this has been a huge honor for me. I love your cookbook, and it's been a real treat for me to be able to talk to one of my cookie heroes directly. So thanks for joining us. Oh, you're the best. Thank you both so much for having me. This has been awesome. Stella's book is called Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts. You can also find her work on SeriousEats.com and follow her at Brave Tart. So, Samin, once we've got bread... Whole wheat or not. (laughs) Whole wheat, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) 
Here's a question about what to do with it. My name is Petter from Oslo, Norway, and I've been making a ton of bread this quarantine period. My question is, what are your favorite ways to use bread, not just as a side, but as an ingredient in a dish? What do you think? Uh, this is my favorite thing to do is cook with bread, so I've got this covered. Whew! Okay, one, and I'm going to say all the classic things. Yeah, we're going to be talking about sliced bread here. A lot of these applications you could just use a loaf of sliced bread for, for sure. Okay. But these are going to be better with, um, you know, bread where the only ingredients are flour, water, and yeast rather than, you know, shelf-stable stuff. Okay. I'm going to go down the whole, like, classic Italian using your bread up route. But before I go there, I want to say there's this recipe for a breadcrumb cake. It's literally a cake made out of breadcrumbs instead of flour in a, a cookbook called This is Camino which is the cookbook from a dearly departed restaurant in Oakland called Camino. And it's kind of just like interesting. It's different than a regular cake, obviously, because it's not flour, it's breadcrumbs, but it's a wonderful way to use up breadcrumbs. But it's a sweet cake. It's not a savory thing. No, no, it's a dessert. It's so good. It gets soaked in a syrup. Mm. Even before we enter this discussion, what I want to say is when your bread gets really, really, really dry and crusty, what's happened is it's lost moisture. So... If it's like so dry and hard that you can't even cut it or do anything with it, the way to come back from that is to rehydrate it. Literally just drizzle some water over it. So the other day I had probably a, I don't know, not quite a quarter of a loaf, but a pretty big piece of a very, very like three weeks old loaf of bread that wasn't moldy. It was just hard, like hard as a rock. Mm -hmm. And so I just ran it under the faucet for a second and let it sit for a while Maybe 15 minutes. Like the way you'd rehydrate a sponge? Kind of. Yeah, like that. Yeah. And then I just let some water go into it. So that was how I got it soft enough to be able to cut safely without like risking cutting off my hand. Mm -hmm. And then I cut it into pieces and sort of tore it as much as I could and poured milk over it because I was going to use those breadcrumbs for meatballs. So that's one way to like extend what meat you have and use bread in your meatballs. But even if you're not going to like tear up the bread, you still could just drizzle a little bit of water on it and then put it in the toaster and that'll create steam and sort of get it to a point where it's sliceable. And then you could make bread pudding, you know, which is where you just pour a custard over some bread. You could make French toast, which is the stovetop version of custard over some bread. Panzanella is this bread salad that you, I like to toast croutons and toss them with tomatoes and cucumbers and basil and pickled onions and make a sort of half soggy, half crunchy salad. So the key with panzanella for me is to make sure that the crusty bread that's been toasted is then appropriately soaked with vinaigrette so that you get both crunchy and soggy in the texture. Because if it's too hard, it's going to like scrape all the skin off the roof of your mouth. And if it's too soft, it's just a soggy mess. So you have to let it sit for like at least, I don't know, 15 minutes until it starts to get really just that like perfect moment. And that's when you want to serve it. So there's panzanella. And can I give my, again, absolute beginners? (laughs) Always. Thing. Um, Yeah. I don't know if this counts as the answer to Peter's question, but I love an egg in a basket. Oh, me too. I love that. I also love, what are all the names for it that you know? Uh, toad in a hole. Toad in a hole. I feel like there's a chicken in a something. Maybe we got to make a list of all the names for this because I feel like there's so many names. Okay, I'm looking it up. Here's an article from MyRecipes.com that says, Egg in a hole has at least 66 different names. Ooh, <laughs> a hole in one? Spit in the ocean? Some of these are insane. There's one, it says a man in a raft. Someone just made that up. Oh no, uh, the raft one I've heard. You have? Yeah, but maybe not a man on a raft. I've heard of other things on the raft. Sure. It'll take more time to list all the different names for it than it will to actually make it because you just take a piece of bread, put a hole in it, (laughs) and then crack an egg in it while it's on the frying pan. And it's so good. It becomes just integrates the whole thing and it looks cute and it's delicious. There's actually one other name that I know of for this dish. And I think I learned it from the movie Moonstruck. Have you seen that movie? Which I love. Oh, yeah. With Cher, right? With Cher. Yeah. In Italian, they call it. Egg in a trash can? <laughs> it's called Uova, in bas- Uova in ba- nel cestino. Okay. There's a great scene where they're making this. Olivia Dukakis is making it for herself and Cher. It's great. So make yourself some eggs in a trash can and watch Moonstruck. <laughs> well, speaking of breakfast foods, I think we should give my friend Kamau a call. 
W. Kamau Bell is a comedian and the Emmy award-winning host of United Shades of America on CNN. But even more importantly, he is the father of three adorable girls. <laughs> but I'm really curious to find out what he's been cooking with his kids. All right, let's call him. Hey, Kamau, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Kamau. I've been up to your house before. We've, we've all cooked dinner. And I'm just wondering, like, what are you guys eating? What are you cooking these days? So for me, I try to, if I'm around, I try to help the kids with breakfast and do breakfast. But I can't do, like, big meals because usually they have to run out to school. But there's a thing, like, that I have made with, for my kids for years that I sort of stopped because I got busy that is great for Juno is two-ingredient banana pancakes. You guys must know about this. You're a cultured people. Well, I heard about the two-ingredient banana pancake from Padma Lakshmi's Instagram a few years ago. <laughs> I've never heard about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's kind of brilliant, especially for kids, because all it is is a banana and two eggs. So it's just like, so you can feed them pancakes, but also feel like they actually got something inside of them other than wheat and, uh, you know. Maple syrup and, and stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is it literally two ingredients? I mean, you can put, you can, you can spice it up. I'm sure Padma covered this because she knows how to do stuff. But yeah, you can like, <laughs> so I do mine with a little bit of baking powder, a little bit of vanilla, and a little, just a hint of cinnamon for the, for the aromatics. I don't know if you guys know that word. <laughs> <laughs> but you can just do it with a banana and two eggs. You just mash the banana up and the banana very quickly turns into like just a mush. And then you put two eggs in and you just whip it together. And they sort of come out, you want to make them small, like dollar size, like, uh, you know, silver dollar size. And they sort of come out a little bit more like a crepe, but they have the same sort of feeling as a, uh, as a pancake. Mm. It's, it's sort of magical because when you hear about it, you're like, that doesn't make any sense, but it works. Do you cook them in butter? Yes, I cook them in lots of butter. You know, it's a very thin mix, but, and then you cook it and they stay very thin and you have to watch them because if your skillet is too hot, they will just sort of burn through right away. So you have to sort of really monitor them if you cook them. And, you know, if she likes them big, which is a little harder to flip them, but I try to make them bigger. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely like the first few batches of them, you have to figure out the system and then... Now it's like I can do it like while I'm dancing and, and, and uh, you know, singing Run the Jewel songs. <laughs> Doing all, all of your dad duties at once. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it's just like, oh, that's why the other day I was like, oh, I can do this quickly. Whereas like literally for the first year of making them, I would like Google the recipe again, even though it's super <laughs> 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 okay, is it still one banana? Okay, it's still one banana. Can I suggest something for Sammy's next like movie party? A thousand percent you can. I think it would be a really fun project for you guys to make popcorn together. Okay. The way I like to make it is I pop it in a pot with coconut oil because I think the coconut oil gets so hot that the popcorn stays crisper than, mm. than with other fats. Okay. And then if you happen to have these very specific hippie ingredients... <laughs> we, may, we may have some. We've been known to hippie. I love putting nutritional yeast and salt on there, but because nutritional yeast comes in these like flakes that often mm -hmm. don't stick to popcorn, what I've discovered is if you grind the nutritional yeast in a spice mill or a coffee grinder until it's a pow mm -hmm. fine powder, which will make you cough if you inhale it okay. um, it it will stick to the popcorn a lot better so then i make a little mixture out of the yeast and the salt and i put it on the coconut oil popcorn and it's so delicious and it's my favorite thing every time anyone between the ages of three and seven comes over okay that's the project that's the thing we do together <laughs> all right so yeah. how much how much salt and nutritional yeast just until it Is tastes it one good. One? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, right. um, it's definitely more yeast than salt. Yeah. It's okay. just, yeah, okay. just until it tastes good. But, um, okay. All right. Yeah. It's a fun project. And even if you don't have all those toppings, I mean, the fun part about doing it at home is like you have all your spice rack or you have Parmesan mm -hmm. cheese you can grate on mm -hmm. there or you can just melt butter and put it on. But I do think that like mixing it in a big bowl after you hear all that popping is really fun mm. for little ones. Oh, yeah. I just ordered a couple of sea salt blends that I think are coming today Oh, that I'm really excited to use on popcorn because that's become our sort of go-to TV snack. But I, I ordered something called Magic Unicorn Sea Salt. I put out a thing on Twitter asking people to send me. I said, what's like a, a specialty food vendor that you love that needs some support so I can try some things that I've never had before? And someone sent me this link to this Magic Unicorn Sea Salt that's a blend of paprika and garlic and rosemary and celery seed and ocean salt. And I'm really excited to try that the next time we make popcorn. Oh, and it comes nice. in like pink rainbow packaging. Yeah. 
exactly. So I definitely feel like some five to eight year olds would be real crazy for this. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. you had me at magic unicorn sea yeah. salt. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, could taste, it could taste horrible. They'll love it. Um, come out. I had one more question for you about the pancakes. Do you think of that as food for your kids? I mean, I have the palate of a five-year-old. So to me, it just sounds like something I would mm-hmm. want to eat. But do you ever eat them yourselves or is it just for your daughters? I mean, when I make them, I'm like, I'll eat one if there's one left over, like at the end, but it's definitely like, this is theirs. You know, I think it's definitely like if I make, I, I would never be at home by myself and make them. Mm. It's like a food hack that I love the fact that like, if they eat them, I'm like, they had protein and a banana and they don't even know it or care. <laughs> I have a favor to ask, which I totally understand if the answer is no, but I wonder if Juno would be willing to come talk about the banana pancakes for a second. Oh, Juno? You want me to see if I can get Juno? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Hold on. We'll see what happens. Okay. <laughs> you want to come talk to me for a second while I'm doing this recording? Say hello. Okay. So she's right here. She's ready. She, she wants to ask you a question about the banana All right. pancakes. Mm-hmm. Hi, Juno. Hi. Can you tell us about the banana pancakes? Do you like them? Yes. What do you like about them? Everything. <laughs> What's your dad like when he's making the banana pancakes? Do you ever see him doing it? Yes. Sometimes I help him do it. There's a whole lot of steps, so I can't really remember all of them. <laughs> do you remember? What do you like to do when we're making it? What do you, what's your favorite part to do? Oh, my God. That's so good. Stir. You like to stir? But my least favorite thing to do is crack the eggs. Oh, why is that? I was trying to crack an egg, but I don't know why. I accidentally dropped it on the floor, and my mom and my sister were watching. So I'm like, I don't want to drop it on the floor again. So I just don't want to do eggs. (laughs) You just don't want to do eggs. But I will tell you, I'm a professional cook. I've made so many mistakes and mistakes and things like dropping eggs on the ground. It's a really important part of becoming a good cook. You have to make mistakes. It's part of practice. So I think at some point, I'm not going to pressure you. You should try and crack another egg one day. Juno, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. I'm so glad we got to hear about the pancakes and the egg. Bye. 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 Well, there you go. That's Juno's podcast debut. I love it. That was amazing. Thanks so much, Kamal. Thank you. And we wish you guys lots of like good times and cozy times and no divorces. People out there who are not parents like, man, I'm catching up on so many books and TV shows. And we just try not to hate you. Just try not to hate you. <laughs> Thanks, Kamal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can find Kamau on Twitter at WKamauBell. And on Sunday, April 26th, his Emmy award-winning CNN show, United Shades of America, returns for a new season. So, Samin, I feel like this episode has been focused primarily around really common staples. But we got one question that, to me, sounded so bonkers. I just, oh, I wanted to hear what you thought about it. (laughs) I can't wait. Okay, here we go. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Mallory. I'm calling in from Brookfield, Connecticut, um, where my boyfriend and I are camped out with uh, some friends at, at their lake house. And tonight is the one-year anniversary of um, of our friends actually getting this house, which has become our quarantine bunker. And I wanted to make them a celebratory meal tonight. Um, I was at Whole Foods yesterday, and uh, at the fish counter, they had a whole octopus. And I love <laughs> octopus, but I've never tried making it at home. Um, so I wanted to get some advice. Um on the best way to prepare it. The equipment that we're working with is a electric stovetop and we do have a grill also outside. Um, so I wondered if I should boil it and then grill it, but would love your um, expert recommendations. Thanks. I've never eaten octopus. Oh, I love octopus. I love it. I love this question. It's so weird, but I love it. It still blows my mind even to think that you can buy a whole octopus at a store. Yeah, but it also probably is like not in high demand. So it's probably why it was available. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love, I yeah, octopus is delicious. So is this something that's going to also draw from your time in Italy? Yeah, I definitely cooked a lot of octopus almost daily in Italy. Almost daily in Italy? Oh, yeah. At the restaurant where I worked, it was called Zibibo. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a wonderful place to work. We had an octopus and potato salad on the menu, and it was so delicious. And so every day we would cook these little Mediterranean octopi, which were 
I don't know, probably like 16 inches long. Mm -hmm. So the thing about octopus is if you don't cook it right, it'll get tough. So it always has to be simmered. And that's an opportunity for you to make a delicious stock at the same time. So water, tomato, a celery, an onion, a garlic, whatever you want to put into that delicious stock, which you could use later to make some octopus risotto or pasta. The key is knowing when to pull it from the liquid, which is as soon as it's tender. So for a little octopus, that could be about 40 minutes. And for a bigger one, that could be significantly longer. You just have to keep an eye on it. You can never let it really boil. Once it comes to a boil, you turn it down to a simmer. And if it boils, it will get tough. So you cook it until it's tender. The Italian sort of like um, old wives thing, (laughs) which I just do out of superstition, is to put a cork, like from a wine bottle, into the pot. Hmm. They say that that helps tenderize octopus. Is that real? Yeah, I don't know if it does or not, but I do it every time. (laughs) And then once it's cooked, what we did at the restaurant was we would slice it and marinate it and serve it at room temperature or a little bit cold. But I think grilling it is really delicious because then it gets all of that char on the outside. And I think the most delicious octopus I've ever had was an octopus and chickpea salad. Here we are again with chickpeas <laughs> at a restaurant in New York called Cafe Altro Paradiso, which is an Italian restaurant. But when I asked them why this octopus was so mouthwateringly delicious, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, it's because our chef Ignacio puts a marinade on there before grilling with fish sauce in it. Like a Vietnamese fish sauce? Yeah, like Vietnamese fish sauce. Mm. I think a little sort of yummy, fish saucy, sugary marinade on there would be so, 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 so good. So the key there is when you're grilling it, all you're doing is you're heating it up and you're charring the outside. You're not really cooking it anymore. So you just grill it over pretty high heat and um, you get all that yumminess. And then you serve it however you like with a little bit of pickles, with a little bit of chickpeas, a little bit of beans. I think that'll be delicious. Sounds awesome. I think. I've never had an octopus and I can't actually really say for sure that I want to. If you want to send me an octopi, I would take it in the form of just eight pies. Just send me eight pies. (laughs) I think think I can't take it anymore. (laughs) Well, that's a good place to wrap it up then today. Oh my gosh. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions to us. And thanks again to Stella Parks for answering all those questions about whole wheat. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to W. Kamau Bell and his wonderful daughter, Juno, for joining us. Also, thanks to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, for letting us use Michael Barbaro's catchphrase for the title of this episode about baking. He always says, Here's what else you need to know today. Thanks to Queen Margaret Miller for her fantastic editing, to Zach McNeese for mixing the show, and to Gary Lee and Casey Deal for their help, too. Let us know if you have any cooking-related questions. You can call us at 201-241-COOK, or you can record a voice memo and send it to us at a littlehomecooking at gmail.com. Our website is homecooking.show. You'll find recipes and ideas from each of the episodes on there. You can follow me at Chowsameen on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Rishi Hirway. Stay healthy, eat well, and take care of each other. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, I'm Samin. And I'm Rishi. And we'll be home cooking. Radio Tokyo.